Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for tonight as we've gathered as your people to, to worship you through song and through prayer and through the reading and listening of your word, God. I pray that as we encounter this peculiar book that is, presents difficult themes at times, that we would see your grace and your love and your truth staring right at us and that it would challenge and encourage us all at the same time, that Holy Spirit, you would really deepen our understanding of you and, Lord, the truth that you provide and the guidance that you give us. So be near to us as we listen to your word and, God, encourage us with your faithfulness. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I have a a question, show of hands. Uh, How many of you here are fearful of regrets, having any regrets? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Come on, don't lie. Some of you are like, you're already regretting not bringing a fan because you didn't know that the AC was going to be broke in the back, but we're okay in here. We all have regrets, right? And uh, we're fearful of the regrets that we may have in the future. We're we have regrets of decisions we made in the past. Maybe it was a relationship where uh, we acted in a certain way or said something that really broke down a relationship or affected it. Maybe it was a career decision or an opportunity we didn't take advantage of. And we look back and we feel a sense of regret. Now, it's kind of trendy and popular to say that I have no regrets, but that's, we just say that. It's not actually true most of the time. We just want to appear strong. And so we're like, I don't have any regrets. It's like, no, I do. And, and honestly, we, we're fearful of regrets if you're like me, and that's why we run so hard after goals. We set goals in our life. We run really hard to accomplish them because we don't want to regret the way that we lived or what we're able to accomplish in our teens and our 20s and our 30s and our 40s so that we live the life that we want to live. A lot of us struggle with FOMO, fear of missing out. If you didn't know what that acronym meant, I learned just a little bit ago what that meant. And we have that because we don't want to have regrets. We don't want to miss out on something. And, and you know, I, I realized, you know, that this has been a hidden struggle in my life is the fear of regrets, having future regrets. And I realized this because um, I have a mild hoarding tendency, like mild hoarding tendency and I was really apparent in the last two weeks because I needed to clean out my closet. I needed to do some summer cleaning. And uh, two reasons. One, because if you walked in the closet, you'd know it's time. Uh, the other reason is because I live in a condo. And if you live in a condo, you know space is very limited. And so you have to kind of clean out and donate and give away. And so doing some summer cleaning and I'm going through the closet. And let me just tell you some of the things that I've given away now. Um, clothes from college, like a lot of them, and that was a long time ago. Uh, that was 10 plus years ago, so I still had a lot of clothes from college. I had two cords that were the red, white, and yellow cords. You know what I'm talking about? You plugged into the TV, and it's, I had two of them. Don't know why. Don't know if they're even used anymore. I had a DVD player, like a non-HDMI DVD player, the red, white, and yellow DVD player. Had that. Also had a duffel bag from high school that I used uh, during basketball season that was totally worn out and still had that. That was a very long time ago. And I'm, I'm looking at this stuff, and I'm like, why do I have this? And I got rid of it with relative ease, except for the DVD player. I thought, maybe I'm going to need this. I don't know. And then I thought to myself, 
when have I ever used a DVD in the past however many years? I don't even know where you buy a DVD. Where do you buy a DVD? Does anyone use them? It doesn't even have an HDMI input, so what kind of TV would I even hook it into? So I went through this whole mental loop and I finally got rid of it. And I realized in, in my life, I've had this mild hoarding tendency of keeping my college clothes for a long time and a DVD player and, and cords that don't even hook up to anything that we use any longer because I'm fearful of regretting getting rid of it. It's not necessarily sentimental value. It's that maybe I'll need those clothes. Maybe I'll need like 45,000 athletic shirts. I don't know. I don't want to have to buy more. Maybe I will need a DVD player. What if the cloud goes down and I want to watch a movie? You know, now I got a DVD player. You know, I don't, I don't know. What if I need a big duffel bag? I have other ones, but what if I want a red one? You know, it's like I have all these things and I realized like I need to stop and stop being so fearful of the regrets that I may have. And, you know, if I need a DVD player, they're like $20. So why am I keeping this? And I've struggled with that. It, it was really bad actually in high school. Um, I don't know if some of you remember this. If you do, um, it's going to excite me. Uh, in high school, there was uh, Star Wars Phantom Menace came out. Who remembers that? Yeah, like four of us. Uh, episode one, Star Wars, the reboot, and Pepsi ran this like promotion where they had cans that had all the characters on the cans. How many of you remember this? Any of you? Okay, okay. Listen, guys, I collected all of them. Me and my friend, we went to Publix. We would open the 12 packs and just find the individual cans. I don't know if you're supposed to do that, but we did that, and we would find all the characters. I collected the entire set of Pepsi cans with the Star Wars characters on it. This is total nerd activity. And uh, really, I was so excited, and I thought to myself, you know, one day, I may have an office big enough where I could display these. That will never happen. This will never happen. And then I thought to myself, if that doesn't happen, then I can sell them and I'm gonna make like a lot of money. You know, a lot of people are gonna want this. And so throughout high school, I kept this whole set and through college, I took care of it and I collected it and I, it's the end of my college career. And you know what happened? Um, some of the cans started to explode because there's Pepsi inside. And that's what happens over the years. And so I had to get rid of it. And I thought to myself, what was I thinking? Like, those, these are worth nothing. No, most people don't even know that they exist. And I was carting them around, you know, for fear of regret that I may be able to display them. And I don't even really like Star Wars that much. But I just, you know, held on to it. Because the, the reality is regret is a powerful emotion, right? It's a powerful emotion. It causes us to think things and do things that uh, we maybe wouldn't do if we weren't so fearful of what we may experience later and feeling a sense of regret and feeling like we missed out on an opportunity or we broke down a relationship or something that could have been different if we would have acted in a certain way. And tonight's passage is about regret. And it's about how do you find a path to victory over your fear of regret or your past regrets. And we're going to be looking at that in Judges chapter 6 this evening, but before we jump into this passage, we're going to quickly recap what happened last week. Last week, we looked at the great prophet and judge, Deborah, and Deborah was called by God to save the Israelites. The Israelites had been oppressed by this king, Jabin of the Canaanites, for 20 years. 
They continue to repeat the cycle that we see in Judges, which is they turn away from God. They worship idols and false gods. God's loving anger for them as their father is kindled and he brings about consequences. He sees the decisions they're making is going to bring harm into their life. And God allows these consequences to take place and they go through these consequences and they finally cry out to God and they ask for help and deliverance. And then God is faithful to deliver them by raising up a judge. So he does this in the story last week in the previous stories. And last week we saw was through Deborah and we saw all types of things happen. There was betrayal and deception. There was this woman who brought in this man, Sisera, who was the general of Jabin's army, the Canaanite army, the enemies of God. And he, she, she brings him into the tent and she's like, hey, listen, it's safe in here. You're going to have a blanket. You want some milk? That's like the cool thing to drink. Have some milk. And then as he's sleeping, she takes a tent peg and hammers it through his head and kills him. And it's like, whoa, wild. All of this is happening. And then God uses Deborah and her leadership over all these different events to bring about peace. And they have 40 years of peace. 40 years of rest and peace and freedom. They're no longer enslaved and oppressed by their enemies. And we pick up in Judges chapter 6. And if you've been with us in this series, you know exactly what the very first verse is going to say. Look at it with me. It says, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. You have heard this now for weeks. It's a fifth week in a row. Every single chapter starts the same way. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, meaning they turned away from God and his truth and his goodness and his way, and they started to worship the false gods and idols again. Forty years of peace, goodness, victory, freedom, turn away from God and to the idols. It was evil in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. It's that we're only in chapter six, and it's already tiresome. You're like, oh my goodness. Over and over and over again, the cycle repeats of the rebellion away from God to idols, and then the consequences, and then they cry out for help, and then God is faithful to deliver them. And when you're reading through the book, you're just like astounded that this continues. But I think we have to slow down, and we've pushed at this in the series, but to slow down to realize that we're not unlike them. Right? We're not going to do a show of hands because all of our hands would be up, but we relate to this. We struggle with the same sin, the same temptation. We fall captive to the same different kind of lies over and over and over again. And we're like the Israelites in that we enjoy periods of rest, right? Periods where things are good and we're at peace, we're growing in our faith, we see God bring victory over adversity, and we're resting. But then we begin to lose perspective, and we turn away from truth, and we listen to what other people are telling and what culture promises, and it feels good to us, it sounds right, and so we turn away from God and we run after false gods. Because we live in a world of gods that are promoting themselves to us all the time. Despite three millennia difference between the people living in the time of Judges and us, we are very much like them. We don't worship Baal and the Ashtaroth and these, these gods that were prevalent then, but we worship the gods of celebrity and wealth and achievement and recognition and pleasure. We're captivated by those gods. And we, we, we run after them and we chase after them for fear of regret that if we don't, we're going to miss out 
And we're not going to experience something that maybe other people are experiencing if they're running after those things. So we relate. There's a great quote by Rebecca Manley Pippert. She's an author and speaker. She says this, Whatever controls us really is our God. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. We are like the Israelites in that we may enjoy periods and times where we see the Lord of life, God, his way, his truth. We enjoy freedom and victory, but then there are times where we turn away from the Lord of life to the Lord of our life, the one that our heart manufactures and we create and we run after all of these false gods and idols, thinking they're going to give us something better. It's going to be more enjoyable. We're going to have less regrets. And we run after those things. And we face the consequences similar to the Israelites. And just like them, as we face consequences for our actions, our thoughts, our behaviors, we turn away from God's word and his truth to all these idols that we run after, we take longer than we should to realize the mess we've made. You relate with that, where you turn away from God and you're like, wait, I've been running after these things for a long time, and I can't believe it took me this long to realize it. Here in the passage, they turn away from God again, they repeat the cycle, and it says, after seven years, they cry out for God. Sounds like a long time, but it's actually pretty quick. The cycle before with Deborah, it took 20 years for them to realize the mess they made from turning away from God and his word and his truth and running after these idols. This time, it's seven years. And I think the reason that they wake up to it so quickly is that they're facing the worst oppression yet. The Midianites are ruthless. So the Midianites take over the Israelites, the people of God. They kick them out of their homes so they're all homeless. They take all of their resources so they have nothing to their name. And as the Israelites begin to try to survive, they're planting crops and taking care of their livestock. Every single time there's a season of harvest, the Midianites come in and take all the crops and all the livestock. So they have no homes, they have no resources, and they have no food. They're starving. After seven years of this oppression, they cry out to God. And they cry out to him, and God does something different this time. Every other time, as they cry out to God, God raises up a judge. Deborah was unique because she was a prophet and a judge, but here... God brings a prophet before he brings the judge, two separate people. And he does this because he's bringing a sermon before he brings salvation. He's bringing a sermon to the people of God before he actually delivers them. Because they've been repeating this cycle time and time and time again. And so he brings a prophet that shares a message to them that was like this. Do you remember what God has done for you? You were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years. You had no hope. And God raised up a deliverer in the person of Moses who led you out of Egypt through the wilderness. And then God used Joshua to bring you into the promised land. And you had these miraculous victories over the people of Jericho. And you begin to settle. And even as you have run away from God, he has been faithful to deliver you time and time again. And here's what God said to you. Just don't worship other gods. Don't run after other idols. And what did you do? 
You keep turning back to them. You see, the sermon comes to them before salvation because God uses this prophet to make something aware in the people of God, and that is their own sin. You see, they have this regret over the consequences of their action, but they haven't engaged in repentance yet. Regret and repentance are two different things. Regret is feeling sorrow over the negative consequences that you face because of your actions. You've thought something, you did something, you face a negative consequence, and you have regret over the decision that you made. You wish you would have did something different so that you won't be facing this consequence. But you don't actually have sorrow over the sin itself. Repentance is not concerned with the consequences. Repentance is sorrow over the sin itself. You see, true repentance brings joy and it brings growth to your life as you feel sorrow over the sin, the decisions, the behavior that your heart produces. But true repentance only comes when you're actually disgusted at what your heart produces. You see, some of us here, you may, may push back a little bit at the label of sin. It's not a, a common thing to hear about that your heart is sinful and it produces these really horrible and disgusting things. We want to believe our heart to be good, not sinful. But you could take that label out. You don't have to say sin. You could call it a vice. You could say that it's your heart's propensity to mess things up. But all of us know that we have the unique ability as humans to mess things up, to mess up a relationship, to mess up a career, to mess up an opportunity, to mess up a conversation, to mess up how organized our closet should be. I just realized that two weeks ago. We have a propensity to mess things up because our heart produces things like greed and pride and jealousy and passivity and anger. We want to work very hard for these things to be produced in us. They are produced from our heart and then our behavior follows the actions of our heart and we face the consequences of that. So God brings this prophet that shares this message of who God is and what he's done for them, his provision and his blessing so that they might see what their heart produces. So they wouldn't just respond to God, God help us and deliver us because we regret the decisions we made and we don't want these consequences and we want better things. But they would actually repent and see what their heart produces. You see, when you only regret the negative consequences that you face because of your actions, you will stay regretful your whole life. Because regret is about you. It's about how you ruined your life. It's about how you missed out on an opportunity. It's about how you limited yourself and didn't experience something that you thought would be enjoyable. It's about how you wasted an opportunity and how you made some poor decisions and it ended up breaking your heart through a relationship. Regret is about you what you did do, what you didn't do, and now how you're facing the consequences of that. Repentance is very different. Repentance isn't about you at all. Repentance is about God. It's how you broke God's heart through your actions, your thoughts. It's how you began to presume upon God's grace. It's how you have begun to trivialize 
God's deliverance. It's how you have begun to manipulate God's truth to fit what you feel is right. Repentance is about God and regret is about you. And when you have regrets, whether it's the fear of future regrets or regrets in the past, it reveals something. It reveals your idols. You see, because when you have regrets, it shows you that you have made something your savior that is not Christ. You have made something more important than God, whether a relationship or a career or an experience or recognition or wealth. Your regrets reveal your idols. And you cannot heal from your regrets until you repent from your idols. You cannot heal from your regrets until you repent from your idols. You see, repentance actually enables you when you look at what your heart produces and you see how it affects God and how you've manipulated God's truth and you have trivialized his blessing and his deliverance and you have begun to presume upon God's grace in your life. And you actually repent and you see your sin for what it is and you see your brokenness for what it is and you see what your heart produces. It actually enables you to move past your regrets. Because even though you know that your decisions and your thoughts and your behavior brings about negative consequences, you know that you haven't lost God. You know that you haven't lost his grace, that you haven't lost his truth, and that he's actually waiting there to respond to you with mercy and forgiveness and compassion. But sometimes, like the Israelite, God brings us a sermon before he brings salvation. He wants to wake us up to the reality of what our heart produces so we don't just keep running to him just because we regret the decisions we made because we don't like the consequences, but that we actually repent, which means return to God. We return to God with our heart because we see what our heart produces. We're looking for grace and for love and for rescue because we need help. We need help. And so the Israelites hear this sermon from the prophet. And interestingly enough, in Judges 6, we have no idea whether or not they repent. We don't know whether or not they're like, wow, like we're just concerned with our consequences and we just regretted our actions. But now we see what our heart produces and we see that we keep repeating this cycle and running after these false gods. And, and God, we, we see our sin and our need for rescue and we return to you. We have no idea if that happened or if they're just consumed with regret. But immediately after this sermon is given to the people of God, God delivers them anyway. You see, there's something really profound in what's missing at times in Scripture. God is faithful to deliver you and to rescue you and to show you grace and love even if your repentance is weak. Even if your repentance is really on the basement floor and you're full of regret and you're consumed with your consequences more than what your heart produces, God is still faithful to rescue you. He's still faithful to respond. And that's what he does in the life of these Israelites. He responds to them. There's a passage that reveals this. It's a famous passage in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we had no repentance, Christ died for you. You see, even when our repentance is weak, God is faithful to rescue and to deliver. 
And we may miss out on the joys of repentance and the growth that comes through true repentance, but our behavior does not alter God's faithfulness. Your behavior cannot alter God's faithfulness and his love and his grace to you. Cannot. You may miss out on the joys of repentance and the growth that comes from that, but you will not miss out on God when you cry out to him. And so they cry out to God, and we don't know if it was with a heart of repentance or simply a heart of regret, but God raises up this judge, Gideon. So they get the sermon, and now salvation comes, and Gideon is brought forth to deliver the people of God. And this, the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon, and here's what the angel says. The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. You're like, yes. Like, I'm going to get that tattooed right here. O mighty man of valor, you know? It's how Gideon responds. He responds like this. Um, the Lord is with me. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what's going on? How are you with us, God? We don't have homes. We don't have resources. We're starving. And you're with us? I don't know about that. Gideon's relatable, right? Ever feel like that? Maybe you heard a sermon, you're in a Bible study, you met with a friend, you read the Bible one night, you're on the Bible app and you're scrolling through and you read the Lord is with you and you're like, how? Wait, I mean, look what I'm going through. Look at the trouble that I'm facing. How is the Lord with me? So we have a faulty assumption and that is that trouble equals God's absence. We think that when times are bad, God cannot be there. And when times are good, God's there. That's a faulty assumption to believe that in times of trouble, God's absent and in times of joy or goodness that God is present. You see, the reality is we live in a broken world, a corrupted world, and it is that way because of us, because of what our heart produces, because of the sin or the vice or whatever label you want to put on what your heart produces and the behavior that you have. All the consequences that we face in life are consequences that have come because of decisions or actions we've made that are sinful or decisions and actions that other people have made that have affected and hurt us that are sinful. We've corrupted and broken this world and we believe that somehow when times are difficult and we're in adversity and we're facing problems and we're in the midst of trouble that God is absent. God's promise is Not that he will remove you from trouble and then he's present when times are good. No, God's promise is that he works in and through trouble. He's over and above and around all of the different seasons of your life, whether they're good or they're bad. He's securing your rescue and your deliverance even when you don't see it. That's not the only faulty assumption that we have. The other faulty assumption is that when we're facing times of trouble and when we're in a, a problematic season that God is unwilling to do something for us. Have you ever prayed before and been like, God, when are you going to do something? Like, I've been praying this prayer for years. I've been praying for this relationship for years. I've been praying for this career decision and opportunity for years. I've been praying for you to give me guidance for years. And when are you going to do something? It's a faulty assumption that God is unwilling to do something. You see, Gideon responds and he's like, God, you're with me, but look what's happening. How can you be with me in times of trouble? And are you going to do something? 
Here's how God responds. He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't chastise him. He responds to Gideon. He says, go in this might of yours. Like, hey, use that passion, Gideon. Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Gideon is there complaining to God, like, God, how can you be with me in the midst of trouble? It's been seven years. Doesn't seem like you're very present. And also, we've been praying. I've been praying for you to come and deliver, and you haven't done anything. When are you going to do something? And God says, am I not sending you? You see, we pray a lot. God, when are you going to resolve this problem? When we should be praying, God, make me the person to help solve this problem. We pray for God to bring a solution when God is oftentimes looking at us and saying, hey, you're, you're the solution. Pray, God, when are you going to fix this relationship? When are you going to make my job a more enjoyable place and enable me to grow? When are you going to bring clarity to my future? When are you going to free me from these repeated struggles and this temptation that I keep facing and the cycles that keep going? God, when are you going to do something when we should be praying? God, make me the solution in this relationship. Show me how to be the solution. God, give me patience and faith in my work. Show me how to walk faithfully each day. God, give me contentment where I'm at in life. Help me to trust you that you are working good even when it seems confusing to me. God, give me strength and courage to fight and battle temptations and make hard decisions. Help me to be the solution in my own repeated cycles. So we oftentimes look at God and be like, God, where are you in times of trouble? And when are you going to do something? And God is looking back and saying, I'm here with you, and you're the solution. God gives this label to Gideon, oh, mighty man of valor. He doesn't feel it. You know, sometimes when we pray to God, I feel like our, our, our posture and our attitude should be more like Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, where he says, here I am, send me. What are the problems, the temptations, the solutions that God is calling and sending us into? And so God looks at Gideon and says, yeah, I'm going to do something, Gideon, and I'm going to use you. So go. And Gideon's response is probably similar to how you're feeling. He says this, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? How am I supposed to be the solution? That doesn't even make sense. Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my father's house. Like, God, that's great and all. You may use other people as a solution, but like, this is a huge enemy. What do I have to offer? I'm from the weakest clan. I'm the youngest, so I literally have nothing. We're socially and economically poor. I have no fighting experience. I have no army. I have no resources. I don't have a home. I've barely eaten. What, do I, what am I going to bring to the table? God looks at him and he says, the Lord is with you, you're mighty man of valor. And, and Gideon's like, what? He doesn't see his potential. He doesn't see himself the way that God sees him. And no, he's correct in having fear and hesitation. God says, you're going to save Israel. You're a mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, oh, I don't know about that. And he's right to feel that way because he doesn't have anything to offer. 
It doesn't matter how much he trains and how much strength he works on growing and the courage that he has and the passion that he has. He has nothing at his disposal that will enable him to defeat the Midianites. Nothing. It's overlooked. Weakest clan, youngest of his family. And yet God calls him to go. So he responds to God with like, um, you may have chosen the wrong guy. Don't have much to offer. And then God responds with this. He says, but I will be with you. And you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Gideon, you're not strong enough, but I am. You're not skilled enough, but I am. And you are not able, but I am. See, God calls Gideon to be the solution in the midst of trouble and the problems that, are being, that he's facing. He doesn't have the strength or the ability or the courage or the passion to actually accomplish what is in front of him and the people of Israel, but God is. God says, I'm with you. You're a mighty man of valor. Trust me. You see, God calls us to be the solution. Different problems and different environments and different struggles that we're facing, and we often respond to God like Gideon. We're like, God, I've tried. You know, I don't really have the ability. I'm too weak for that temptation. I always fall to it. I don't really know how to mend this relationship. I don't know how to work at my job and my career in a way that will be helpful. And God says, I'm with you. It's okay. I'm with you. And Gideon hears this, and he responds appropriately because he allies his strength, his very limited strength. He does have passion. We see that. Allies his strength and his passion with the Lord's presence. It's the same call to us. You see, as we're facing different struggles and temptations and problems in our life, and God may be saying, hey, I'm with you. You can be the solution. See the depth and depravity of your sin and repent and return to me and know that I'm with you and you can run after those things. You can resolve the problems that you're facing with me by your side. We respond like Gideon, like, I don't know. You may have the wrong person. But our response when we hear that God is with us is to ally our strength, even if it's limited with the presence of God. Jesus says something really interesting. He says that peace I give to you and peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives it to you, so let not your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Some of the things that you may be facing, there's fear and there's doubt and you wonder if you can actually be the solution and you can see things get resolved and if some things feel hopeless, some things feel too far gone, temptations feel too strong. And Jesus says, hey, listen, I give you peace. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be troubled. And we think, I don't know. I feel a little hesitant, a little full of fear. And we're right to feel that way because we don't really have anything to combat the different temptations and struggles of our life. But Jesus follows up by saying, peace I leave you and peace I give you. Don't be troubled with this. If you love me, you keep my commandments, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper who will be with you forever. The spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you 
and will be in you. You see, we run at different things and we fall to them time and time again and we repeat these cycles in our life and we feel like we don't have anything to offer. We can't combat the different struggles in our life and we're right to feel that way. But not when we read that. That God is with us. The Holy Spirit dwells in and through you. He is a helper. He is peace. There should be no doubt and no fear because he's dwelling with you. You can actually ally your strength, even if it's limited, your passion, your limited skills, whatever it may be, you can ally it with the Lord's presence because the Lord is living and active inside of you through faith in Christ as Savior and Lord. But you have to hear this. You cannot overcome the enemies and the troubles that are among you until you overcome the enemies and the troubles around you. That's what I mean by that. Gideon goes out, he allies his strength with the Lord's presence, and you would think that he's going to go, he's going to get the army, he's going to go fight the Midianites, but before he does that, which we'll see next week, God tells him, I want you to go and I want you to tear down the altar to Baal and Ashtaroth at your father's house, the gods that they were worshiping. And so he goes at night and he tears down this altar that's erected to Baal and Ashtaroth, And he tears it down and then he replaces it with an altar or a monument to the Lord. Why is this the first step in deliverance? They're facing the Midianites. They're starving. They have no homes. They have no resources. And yet Gideon is called to go tear down this altar to these idols before they actually begin to go fight the enemies that are the Midianites. It's because there can be no room for another God, when you're allying your strength to the presence of God. See, Jesus says that no one can serve two masters. We face times of trouble and we feel like, God, where are you? And God says, I'm right here with you. You can be the solution and you may not have a lot of ability. You may not have a lot of passion. You may be full of regrets. Your repentance may be weak, but I'm with you and I am for you. But before you can go and kick out all of the obstacles that you're facing and that you can find freedom and victory over your temptations and stop repeating this cycle, you need to kick out the idols. You need to repent and return back to me. You need to tear them down and replace that seat in your heart that you put wealth and achievement and recognition and fame and pleasure. You need to replace that with me. Ally your strength and your heart to me. You'll find victory. Live a life free of regret, full of freedom, and rest in the Lord. I love this passage from the book of Lamentations, and I'll close with this. It's a challenge. It says, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Return or repent. Test your heart. Examine your heart and your ways and return to the Lord. And when you return to the Lord, you know what you're going to find? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, not any other idol or any other God, any other temptation. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, the deepest part of you. Therefore, I will hope in him. I will hope in the Lord, not all these other things. 
You see, as we run forward and we seek to live a life free of regret and free of a fear of regret, we have to kick out the idols, these other false gods that we run after. The Lord needs to be our portion. We need to see the Lord build our life upon him and his word and his truth. We'll find victory and freedom and hope. Will you pray with me?